Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, open it to 2 Peter chapter 1. It's towards the end of the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 1. As you're finding that, uh, one of the frustrations during this time of social distancing that we are going through is that we don't really get to meet and say hello to people that are new visiting like we want to. And so if you're here for the first time or you're newer and we haven't met you, man, I can't wait to hug you when it's a little bit more appropriate socially to do that and meet you, get to know your name. Um, one thing you can do is just fill out the little visitor card that you can find in the back of the chair in front of you and drop that in one of the black boxes as you go. We'd love for you to do that. Um, I know this is PCS season. We've got a lot of new military folks that are coming in, lots of young soldiers coming into Fort Benning for training. If that's you, man, I'm just really thankful that you're here and I look forward to getting to know you, Lord willing, in the future. Well, we are starting a new series in 2 Peter that we are creatively entitling 2 Peter. And so here's our plan. We're going to work through this book for however long it takes. This morning we're going to, we're going to look at the first couple of verses. And I'm really excited about this passage, this text, this letter, book, 2 Peter. A couple years ago we preached through 1 Peter. And I remember thinking, well, maybe let's just continue on and go into 2 Peter. For whatever reason we didn't at that time, we went into another book. But I'm thankful that we didn't because now in this particular moment that we find ourselves in culturally, I think 2 Peter is a book that is just written for us. It's written to put steel in the spines of people, God's people that were undergoing difficulties. Now, this is a bit of a broad brush, but the situation in 1 Peter was external trials, and Peter was encouraging the church to hold up amidst external trials. In 2 Peter, it seems like the trials are more internal in the church. Peter is particularly concerned about false teaching in the church and false teachers. And so, again, this is painting with a bit of broad brushes, but chapter one is, is Peter's encouragement for them to remember and understand the implications of the gospel and to be diligent in remembering the truths that God has done for them through Christ. Chapter three is looking forward to the return of Christ. And so this sandwich of looking to what Christ has done for you and then looking up to Christ's return is the the bread of the meat of chapter two in which he describes and really uh, dismantles the false teachers that were plaguing the church. And we have many false mindsets, ideologies, teachings, not only culturally, but even within the church that serve to threaten us today. So I'm looking forward to making application. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. And then I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, and we're going to zero in on just a greeting, verses 1 through 2. Lord, thank you for this, for this letter, this book that we know of, Second Peter, that you inspired your servant Peter to write. Lord, there is so much in this this short little book, these three chapters that you have intended, that you've superintended, that you've inspired for your people so that we might be more diligent, that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, 
our desire is not just merely to get through another book of the Bible so that we can accumulate more facts in our head. But Lord, we want to be transformed. I want to be transformed. I want to be humbled. I want to be chastened. I want, I want us as a church to be formed more into the image of Christ so that we can be more confident, so that we can be more fruitful, so that we can be more humble, so that we can be more compassionate, so that we can be more zealous for your glory in this time, and so that your people would look more like Jesus and that unbelievers that would gather with us and hear these truths that are in this book that they might come in your grace to know Christ. Nothing else matters. Lord, do this in us, I pray, and use me as a display of your grace that you would use me to be your mouthpiece over the coming weeks as we look through this letter to communicate these truths. Lord, I, I need your help, and I pray for it. And help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, Simeon, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That's our text. Let me read verses 3 and 4 just for a little context. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Okay, we're going to look at these first two verses, verses 1 and 2, and these are just the opening words, but as is the case through many, in fact, all of the epistles in the New Testament, which are letters written to groups of people, this we know from First Peter's letter is written to a group of Christians scattered throughout a geographical area. The, the opening of New Testament letters are so rich with theology, and this is certainly the case in 2 Peter. So let's look. Let's just work through. We're going to unfold three truths that I want us to see in these first two verses. So let's look. Verse 1, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. This is Peter just describing himself by these two words, servant and apostle. First thing I want you to notice is Simeon Peter. You, in your Bible, depending on your translation, it may just say Simon Peter rather than Simeon Peter. Why the different spelling? Well, Simeon, with the E in it, was just the Aramaic spelling of the Hebrew name Simon. So there's nothing really to this. This was just a different way of, P of Peter saying his name. And this kind of serves as a subtle endorsement of Peter's authorship of this book. I don't want to get into the weeds on this, but 2 Peter is actually was, at least in the first century, and then again later in the 1800s when a bunch of liberal theologians started to doubt the whole Bible. It, it is one of those books that has been taught 
talked about and discussed whether or not Peter really was the author of 2 Peter? I think the answer to that is clearly yes. We don't need to spend much time on this. I just want you to take note of the fact, in case you were wondering, well, why does it say Simeon Peter here, but in other parts of my Bible it refers to Simon Peter as Simon Peter. This is just Peter self-referring to himself in the natural vernacular that he would have been more familiar with. So in a sense, it's a kind of endorsement of the personal nature of Peter's actual authorship of this book. And I just want us to take note that Peter actually uses both of his names. In fact, he's often called Simon Peter throughout the scriptures for a couple reasons. One is he's leaving us no doubt as to which Peter this is, or which Simon this is. Simon was a very common name. That was his given name. Peter is the name that Jesus gave to Simon upon his confession of faith in Matthew chapter 16. And so he's just wanting to clarify that this is the Simon that is Simon Peter, the one that was the apostle, one of the closest ones to Jesus. So he's just, he's just wanting to make sure that we know he's validating the authenticity and the authority of his letter because he was an apostle. And just a side note here, I just love when I see these two names sandwiched together because they are a kind of picture of the complication of Simon Peter's soul, which is a picture and encouragement of the complication of our own soul. Simon, before he came to faith in Jesus, before he fully understood who Jesus was, was a rash man who made many mistakes. And even after he came to faith in Jesus, even after he received this name of Peter, he was a man who made many mistakes. He is like us, a kind of walking contradiction. We read last week, and Tyler just so beautifully explained Matthew chapter 14, where where he doubts, this is Peter walking on water, at least for a moment, for a few steps there anyway, but then he doubts and sinks. But then yet in Matthew chapter 16, he's this disciple of Jesus who has this great understanding and revelation that Jesus is the Christ. So we see this duplicity in a sense in Peter. At the end of the Gospels, he, he is the one who is bold enough to cut off the ear of the soldier who came to arrest Jesus in the garden. But then just moments later, he denies that he knows Jesus in front of a teenage girl at a campfire. How can you be so bold in one moment and so scared in the next? He, he, Jesus and speaks to him at the end of John chapter 1, and he says, Simon, feed my sheep. Jesus speaks to him with such clarity and precision and personalness, but yet just moments after Jesus speaks to him with this profound mission that becomes Simon Peter's calling in the early part of Acts, he complains about John, who seems to be closer to Jesus than him. And then he preaches, this is just amazing, in Acts chapter 2, Peter is used by God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel powerfully at Pentecost, which is the beginning of the New Testament church. And then yet later on, we read in Galatians chapter 2, years later, that he is hip, hip, he's, he's, he's partaking in hypocrisy as he's doing one thing in front of the Jewish Christians and another thing in front of the Gentile Christians. So he's this powerful man of God, but he's this messed up train wreck. Kind of like us some of the time. And so when I see Simon Peter or Simeon Peter, I'm just thankful for the complexity that is Simon Peter because people are complex 
Spiritual growth takes time, and God is patient with mis- misfits. Amen? You know, one of my favorite little, those claymation uh, shows around Christmas time, I just have always been sort of memor- mesmerized by them, Rudolph, and all the shows where it's like the little clay figures, and they somehow speed it up and make it, whatever. Anyway, I'm sure they do it now with computer graphics, but that one show, the, that one place, The Island of Misfit Toys, where all the stuff that gets broken and sent, and it's just these sad toys that don't get chosen by any kid. Well, the church is like the island of misfit toys, and Simon Peter is one of those. And notice how he describes himself. He describes himself as a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, this word servant is powerful. It could be also translated maybe more literally as a slave of Christ. Why is that important? Because Peter is he's going to mix two things together, the humility of calling himself a slave, but the authority of calling himself an apostle, which we're going to look at in just a moment. The Bible is clear, friends, and this is the self-description of every Christian that we are a bondservant, a slave of Christ. The Bible's clear, we are either slaves of sin or slaves of Christ. And paradoxically, this is sometimes what we are so prone to forget, that becoming a slave to Christ is actually the only way to freedom. And we should revel in that, especially in sort of our modern American, I'm the captain of my own soul, sort of cultural air that we breathe. We need to be reminded of the fact that actually the pathway to joy is to be a slave, a servant, to be mastered by God. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. He says that you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And freedom for the Christian is actually being mastered, being a slave of Christ. I think this has important implications. Just this, this was a, a theological controversy back in the 1970s and 80s. There was this man that was teaching that you could confess Jesus as your Savior and then later on make him the Lord of your life. And this became the, what's called the Lordship Controversy. And the Bible is completely unfamiliar with that line of thinking. Without Christ being our Lord and Master, He is not our Savior. Those two things must go together. It's not like you can get a kind of insurance policy when you're younger, live your life however you want, and then after you've had your fun, decide to make Him the Lord of your life. That's the, that's the, the downside of thinking that way. That's the particular, that's the danger of that type of theology. Although those who were teaching it certainly didn't intend that, that's the downside of that. Without him being our Savior, he cannot be our Lord. Those two things, are they go together. That's who Jesus is, one and the same to his people. Now, this does not mean that Christians will not struggle with sin. Of course we will follow any of us around for more than 30 minutes. But it is to say that the mark of a believer, a true believer in Jesus, is that they are not mastered, they're not dominated, they are not enslaved. That's the message of Romans 6, that we are no longer enslaved. We have been taken out of the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his son whom he loves. That's Colossians chapter 1. So we are the servants of Christ. That's what Peter's describing himself of. And then he calls himself the apostle, an apostle. What is this word? This is a really important word in the New Testament. 
Now, this word apostle is a word that means literally the sent ones or messengers of. It's a very important word in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. And the Bible uses it in several ways. And you need to be aware of the different ways that the Bible uses this word apostle. Sometimes the word apostle is used to refer to just ordinary, nameless, anonymous, everyday Christians in the New Testament who are being sent out by New Testament churches to be messengers, maybe to carry a letter or a message from one church to another. And in that sense, it merely means a messenger of that particular church to a sister church. But the other way, and in this particular sense, the other way that the Bible uses this word apostle or sent ones is referring to a specific role of a specific group of people who were the 12 disciples of Jesus who were specifically sent by Jesus to be his messengers, to be those who would eventually write the New Testament and establish the new church. And those are 12 specific men. And then also Paul, who Jesus comes back down and, and, and shows himself to in Acts chapter 9 and is now sent by Jesus, those apostles, capital A, is an office of the church that are a one-time group of people that have a special, unique, and one-time authority that nobody else has. They are foundational in the, the establishment of the church. This is what Paul says about apostles and prophets in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 20. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so he's saying that there's a foundation laid here in the New Testament church. And what is that foundation? It is the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And what is that? It is the teaching of the Bible. And the Bible has come to us, the Old Testament, through God's Old Testament prophets, and the New Testament through a specific group of people known as these apostles, these 12 plus Paul sent out, especially commissioned by Jesus to be his foundation-laying, Bible-writing, New Testament church-establishing officers. In fact, the whole New Testament, all of the books of the New Testament, in the first and into the second century, battles, and not battles really, but discussions were being had in the early church as to what letters, what books should be part of this holy scripture. And the test by which a letter was, was, had to be examined by was whether or not it came through one of the hands where it was written by one of the apostles or if not written by one of the apostles, came through one of their ministry associates, which then had the apostolic authority. So there were many letters written to encourage the church in the first and second centuries, but if it didn't come through or endorsed by one of the apostles, it didn't make it into the 27 books that we now know of as the Bible. And so that's really, really important. What's the take-home point? You're saying, Brad, what? I mean, okay, I get this. Why is this important? Well, two reasons. One, 
There are no longer any apostles. All the apostles, in this sense, in this role in the New Testament church, are dead. And so if anybody claims to be an apostle, and there are people out there that are on TV, that have awesome websites, that have YouTube channels, that send their false teaching all around the world, that claim to be apostles, they are wrong, they are false, and what they are claiming is an authority that is equal with these New Testament specially commissioned servants of Jesus, and what happens is now they're teaching as they say, and it's heretical, it's wrong, they try and have their own words, their own teaching, as being on par with the authority of Scripture. And friends, that is false. And there are many Christians, because these people have good websites and good media departments, there are many Christians who are duped by the teaching of these false teachers. And much of it exists in the Pentecostal and charismatic stream, not exclusively, but much of it. And it exalts their word, puts it on the same level of Scripture, exalts their experience and puts it on the same level of Scripture. And many Christians, many uh, ignorant and unaware Christians are prone to their false teaching. And so we need to be aware of that. So that's, that's number, implication number one. Just, here's just a truth. This is just a truth that we'll, we'll put on the screen that for just every Christian for all time is that we can trust our Bibles as being God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient word to his people. In fact, that's one of the major themes of Second Peter, that this word that we have, that we now know of as the Old Testament, and now the compiled letters of the New Testament, is God's word to his people, which we'll read at the end of chapter one, was given under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So now, we don't need to wonder what God says. God has spoken to us through his word, and as we'll get into next week in chapter, in verses three and four, what he's given us is sufficient for all things in life. It's sufficient. And so we need to, this is one of the major lessons, one of the major truths of 2 Peter, that God's people need to know the word. They need to grow in the knowledge of God and Savior Jesus Christ through the word because it's been breathed out by him. It's sufficient. It has his authority, and therefore we can trust it. And the major part, the main emphasis of the Christian life is knowing God through his word, which will protect us from false teaching. That's, that's a big part of Second Peter, and that's truth number one. And all of that's just wrapped up in Peter calling himself an apostle. So we can take great comfort in the word of God. Let's keep going. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. This is how he describes everyday, ordinary Christians like us. He calls us those, he calls those he's, he's writing to just average, ordinary, anonymous Christians in these local churches that are receiving this letter. He says that they are people who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. There's gold in that sentence. There's richness in that sentence. The, the old King James says it, and I, I like this way better. In fact, that's, it's the title of the message. Like, those who have obtained a like precious faith. This version uh, translates that, that word obtained, a faith of equal standing with ours. This is a rich word. 
Obtained in our ESV version does not mean that we obtain this faith that puts us in equal standing with Peter and the other apostles and every other Christian. It doesn't mean that we've attained it through personal effort, but rather the sense of this word is that we receive it passively. In fact, this same word is used in the rest of the New Testament as, as a description of like the casting of lots that seems to be random, but yet we read that God is in control of it. So this obtaining is not something that we effort and do to get, but it comes to us by the providence of God. It falls to us as a gift. And that's how the Bible speaks of this faith that we obtain in other parts, most notably Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, and, and I'm sure you're familiar with this verse if you've been around here for a while. And if you're not, become familiar with the, the, the first 10 verses of Ephesians 2. They are, they are the clearest, I believe, explanation of how God saves a person in all of the Bible. Ephesians chapter 2, after Paul has described the consequences of sin that all of us have partaken in, which has caused us to be spiritually dead and separated from God, he now takes up the question of how does God make dead people alive so that they can believe in him? He answers that for us in verse 4, Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, so it's rooted in his love, not in anything in us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So notice that word grace. God decides to make a person alive, and the reason, the motivation for his work of regeneration, his work of making that person alive, is rooted in his grace, and his grace is free of any conditions that he sees in that person, because he says that the reason he makes us alive is because of the great love with which he loved us. In other words, not because of anything in us simply because of his grace we have been saved and then he skips ahead let's skip ahead to verse 8 he then further explains what happens when this grace comes when God makes a person alive and remember we're thinking about this in the context of obtaining faith that saves us he says for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it referring to faith, is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So what's he saying here? He's saying that we're dead in our sins. When God saves a person, he looks at them, he loves them, not because there's anything in them, effort in them, good works, good intentions, or any gift or ability that he needs, but simply because of his love and grace that he's decided to give that person, he makes them alive, not because of anything in them, that's grace, and then he gives that new heart a gift of faith, and now that person is enabled with that faith to look to Jesus, what Jesus has done in his life and death and resurrection, and he now believes and trusts that the reason they are made alive is because God has atoned for their sin through the death, the life, the death, and the resurrection of his son Jesus. That's salvation. 
And what Peter is saying here, friends, he's just saying hello, and this is the richest theology the Bible has. He's just saying hi. He's saying you've obtained this faith, and this faith, listen to this, dear one, it's of equal standing with ours. So that means you, dear one, who just came to faith, you who didn't grow up in a Christian family, you who don't know much about the Bible, who are sitting next to somebody that's been a Christian for 50 years, what is Peter saying? He's saying that your faith is of equal standing with that aged saint next to you or even the apostle himself. That's remarkable. That means there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Nobody should walk in this door thinking, oh, you don't know what I've done. If you think that, if you think that somehow your past causes you to barely sneak in, you don't fully understand the grace of the gospel. You are still caught up in this mindset that God has saved this person because they had something to offer them, so their faith is stronger than yours. No! He gives faith and that faith saves. And it's of equal standing with the apostles. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. This is encouraging, as Uncle Chunk Chuck is often. The faith of the weakest believer in Jesus, that's some of you, is the same kind of faith as that which was found in Simon Peter, who stands among the very first of the worthies in the college of the apostles. Our faith may not be like that of Peter in degree, but if it is genuine, it is like it as to its nature, its origin, its objects, and listen to this, and its results. So I like what he distinguishes there. Peter in degree may have a more developed faith than you and me because of his experiences, because he's yielding to God in sanctification. Yes, some of us are more sanctified than others. We have a greater degree of saving faith. But listen to what Uncle Chuck says there. He says, if our faith is genuine, it's like that in nature, origin, its objects, which is Christ, and its results. In other words, even the weakest faith seemingly from our perspective will get us all the way home. And that's encouraging for Christians that may be racked with doubt. And then what does he say? He says, this faith that we've obtained, which is of equal standing with ours, how do we get this faith? By the righteousness of God and of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh my gosh. There's so much in this half sentence. First, let's look at the phrase, by the righteousness. These words get to the very heart of the gospel and are worth their weight in gold. Saving faith that we obtain as a gift that God gives when he makes us alive comes to believers by and through, Peter is saying here, the righteousness which is outside of us is the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So why is this phrase, the righteousness of Jesus, so important, or the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, so important. Because Jesus' righteousness that comes to us when we get faith, that we, that we receive, that we trust in, Jesus' righteousness is the solution to the great problem, the great dilemma 
of the Bible. And here's the great dilemma of the Old Testament. How will a righteous God make unrighteous people righteous? I think you can sum up really the the problem, the dilemma of the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and the first part of verse 7. This is Moses. He's standing before the Lord, interceding before the people of God, and listen to this beautiful scene. The Lord passed before him, meaning Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Verse 7 keeping steadfast love for thousands, listen to this now, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So how does that second part of verse seven work? How will God forgive sin, but also by no means clear the guilty when we read the rest of the Old Testament and the rest of the New Testament and we read our own lives and we realize that there's nothing in us that makes us forgivable. So how is God going to forgive sin but also by no means clear the guilty? How can he be merciful and bring his judgment at the same time? And the answer is the cross of Christ. The answer is what his son Jesus has done through his righteous, perfect life, his sinless sacrifice on the cross. So how the riddle, the dilemma of Exodus 34 gets answered is only through the cross. Romans, in fact, the whole book of Romans is really an explanation of how God puts his son Jesus forward as a propitiation, a sacrifice, to bear the wrath of the people that he makes alive, his, Christian, his people, his children. And Jesus bears their wrath, and because Jesus isn't just a good and noble man, but he is also the eternally holy, infinitely holy Son of God, he has enough holiness to satisfy and extinguish and absorb all of the punishment for all the sin, past, present, and future, of all of his people. And so Jesus' wrath is poured out on the Son instead of his people. Jesus becomes their substitute. He takes, listen to this, he takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. They call this the great exchange. He takes our sin, he gives us his righteousness. And now, the way God saves a person, while they should have been judged in their sin, he makes them alive, he gives them a new heart, and with this new heart comes faith. And now that person, through this faith that they now have as a gift from God, is able to trust in what Jesus has done in his substitutionary death on the cross to bear the wrath of God for them and receive the righteousness of Christ for them before God. And so now we have this faith, but it's not just a general ambiguous faith in God. It's a faith that causes us to receive the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is how Paul describes it in Philippians chapter 3. 
He's reflecting on his religious heritage and how in the world's eyes that would seem to commend him as worthy of God's righteousness or grace. And he says, no, it doesn't. So verse 7, picking up in Philippians 3, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, verse 9, and be found in him, listen to this, not having my own, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. In other words, not through my good works and my law abiding, even the best of us, that's not what commends us before God is what he's saying, but that which comes through faith in Jesus, in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So do you see the inner workings of the gospel? We are saved not by our righteousness, but by God's regenerating, making alive miracle of grace, whereby he gives us faith, and then that faith allows us to receive, to be like the pipeline, the water that receives the righteousness of God that comes to us by faith. And Peter is describing us as Christians, that's true of you, whether or not you feel like it or not, if you're a believer. John Bunyan, the, the great Puritan writer, he wrote the book Pilgrim, Pilgrim's Progress that some of you may be familiar with. It's the second most published book in the world in the English language apart from the Bible. And he wrote several books. One of them was his, basically his, the autobiography of his salvation experience, and it's called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And Bunyan was racked. Bunyan was a deep thinker. Bunyan was, now we're talking about John Bunyan, not Paul Bunyan, no relation. John Bunyan was this Puritan preacher who was actually just a blue-collar man. He was a, like a, a metal worker. He, 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 he basically repaired people's pots and pans. And he had this great mind that God used to write some of the great works in literature. And he was racked as many of the Puritans were to some degree, with a kind of overly introspective heart. He really looked inside himself a lot. And although this was good for him in a sense, it also caused him a lot of doubts about his own standing with God. And this is what he writes in Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners when he finally kind of broke through and realized and found rest in this righteousness of God that doesn't come from anything in him but outside of him in Christ. Listen to this. He says... One day, as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And with the eyes of my soul, I saw Jesus at the Father's right hand. There, I said, is my righteousness. So that whatever I was, or whatever I was doing, God could not say to me, where is your righteousness? For it is always right before him. I saw that it is not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness is Christ. Now my chains fell off indeed. My temptations fled away and I lived sweetly at peace with God. Listen to this last paragraph. Now I could look from myself 
to him and could reckon that all my character was like the coins of a rich man carry that a, a coins that a rich man carries in his pocket when all his gold is safe in a trunk at home oh i saw that my gold was indeed in a trunk at home in christ my lord now christ was all my righteousness sanctification and redemption. Do you see the power in what Bunyan is saying here? He's saying that depending, notwithstanding how I'm feeling about myself in this moment, whether I've been good in my spiritual disciplines, whether I'm in a difficult place with my spouse, whether I've been a bad parent this week, I can look away from myself to Christ whose righteousness never wanes on my behalf. And even my righteousness is like coins in the pocket of a rich man who has innumerable riches stored in a trunk at home. How, what, what should that produce in us, friends? It should produce assurance, but not an assurance that causes us to be okay with our sin. It's an assurance that Bunyan interpreted helped him to cause temptation to flee. His chains fell off. He fought sin. He didn't rest in his sin with this assurance to know that his righteousness doesn't rest in him, but in Christ in heaven. And that's what Peter is saying. By the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. And by the way, just this thought, God and our Savior Jesus Christ, is just a clear expression of the deity of Jesus. I don't have time to get into it, but the Bible over and over in many places in the New Testament speaks and calls Jesus God. And this brings up an important event in the early church called the Arian Controversy. There was this man named Arius in the fourth century who was a teacher in the church, and he began to teach the heresy, the wrong teaching, that Jesus was a creature who was made by God. He was misunderstanding the implications of the English word that we know of as begotten, thinking that Jesus was a creature created by God. And he was wrongly understanding that Greek word begotten, that it was more speaking to the status of Jesus as the firstborn inheritor of all things, not his temporal uh, order of creation, that Jesus is not created. He is the co-eternal Son of God, is what the Bible clearly teaches. And this led to several church councils, the Council of Nicaea and the Chalcedonian Council, which became the Chalcedonian Creed, which affirmed the full deity of Christ based on the Bible. Why is this important? Why do I labor to take a few minutes just to mention that? Because, friends, when we understand the gospel and we see how wicked our sin is, we realize that it's the, only the holiness of God himself in the Son Jesus that can save us from the wrath of God. So we need God the Son, who's truly God, not created, co-eternal, co-glorious with the Father. We need God the Son to satisfy the holiness of God the Father. That's the heart of the gospel, that we need more than just a created man. We need God himself to save us from God himself. And that's what's happened on the cross. Which then leads us to this truth number two before we hurry on. Let me just mention this. This is just a hallmark of our faith. We are saved not by our works, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Every little word there in that sentence is important. We are made right. We're saved. We're reconciled. We're redeemed. We're born again, not because of our righteousness, but by grace alone. Remember, not because of anything in us. Through faith alone, the gift that he gives us, 
in Christ alone, who is not just a good man, but the eternal son of God, co-creator. He is God in the flesh. And that view, that gospel, and that gospel alone is a gospel that can save. If you understand this truth, friends, you understand the central message of the Bible. All right, let's hurry on and finish up. Verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. He is telling us here, and this is going to be the rest of chapter 1, that, okay, here's the gospel. He's going to remind us of it. And now he's going to, he's going to encourage and exhort his readers and us two centuries, two, two, two millennia later, to, to take this knowledge of the gospel and to work it into our lives for it to be multiplied. The goal of the Christian is to grow through this knowledge, this knowledge that we know that comes to us from the Bible through the hands of the prophets and the apostles that we can trust. It comes to us so that we may know God and grow in our faith. And that's the importance, I think, it just is a kind of clear endorsement of good doctrine, good teaching, clear teaching about what the Word of God says. You don't need to hear about a pastor's experience. If you go to a church and he tells bunches of stories about his kids and his dogs and his day, don't, don't, I mean, be gracious, but don't go back. You need somebody that will preach the Bible to you and you need to read the Bible. We need to be people of the book. That's a big part of 2 Peter. And one of the reasons for the weaknesses of much of the American church is because we are tossed to and fro by the experiences of charismatic people who just sell their religious junk when God has given us his his word so that we might know and grow simple, ordinary, clear-headed lives in this dark age that we live. This is what Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Listen to verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Another way to describe that is doctrine. Persist in this. In other words, Grow in the grace, young pastor, and give people God's word. Don't try and be cute. Don't try and be slick. Don't try and be entertaining. Just give God's sheep God's grass, which is his word. That's what they need. They need the green grass of the pastures of his word. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, here's the deal. Clear biblical preaching, when it's unadulterated, when it's unadorned, will often bore the hearts of carnal and worldly people. And that's why pastors and preachers who have not really settled on this conviction spruce it up with all their cuteness. This is what the message of 2 Peter is in chapter 1, is that the word of God more fully confirmed than even Peter's knowledge of seeing Jesus in his transfiguration will see. The word of God is enough. And if God's people will discipline themselves to not be like little children who always need to be entertained, if they will settle on this, and if they will hunker down into the regular, ordinary rhythm of just giving themselves to church life and the Word of God and encouraging it and reading and speaking it to one another, they will grow and they will be protected from the false teaching of this world. 
I love that because it's simple and it's, it's so uncreative, it's beautifully powerful. Well, you don't have to start some new set and change the backdrop all the time and have all this junk. Just open up the Bible, believe it, speak it passionately, and give it to God's people. All right, I'm doing self-therapy right now. I'm sorry. Which leads us to this final truth. <laughs> final truth. We grow and mature by knowing God through the scriptures. We grow and mature by knowing God through the scriptures. Now, I'm not advocating a kind of rote, dry, boring reading of the word of God. I, I, I'm not. Man, you need to, this, this word needs to be like a fire shut up in our bones. And we need to, we need to, man, we need to believe it. We need to preach it and teach it passionately. We need to love it. And I know that, the, I know my flesh is, can be so weak and it can be so hard to give yourself to the reading of the word daily when your life is busy and your stresses are real. And I get all that, I get all that. But that's why God gives us each other. That's why he gives us a local church to encourage us in this. We need this encouragement. I need this encouragement. Sometimes when I read the Bible, it seems distant and cold. And I need you. I need the prayers. I need my fellow pastors. I need the responsibility. I need the weight of having to stand up in front of God's people and give it to you. And what happens when we all fight, when we all admit that weakness, and when we do it, what happens when we give ourselves to the simple teaching and preaching and reading and absorbing of God's word, we grow and mature and we know him more and more. And the Spirit of God works with the Word of God that the Spirit wrote, and He makes us slowly and imperceptibly more like Jesus, and we understand the false teaching of this world, and we can resist it. So I conclude with this. These two verses are really just a kind of short description of the Christian life. You come to faith by this faith that's given to you as a gift through regeneration, through the righteousness of Christ, and now the rest of your life is growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus so that you can be more fruitful and so that you can withstand the false winds of bad teaching that exists in every age. Friends, that's the Christian life. Oh, how we need the steel that this letter intends to put in the spines of God's people. May he be gracious to do that as we study this letter together. Let's pray. Father, I think of Paul's words to Timothy about your word where he says that these scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Or maybe even today there's somebody in this room who doesn't know Jesus and they've heard the gospel today. They've been prone to look within themselves for worthiness to commend them to you. By your grace, cause them to look away from themselves. Give them eyes to see. Give them a new heart, I pray, so that they can finally look away from themselves to Christ who is their righteousness, who died on the cross for all those that will trust in him. Lord, make that the case this morning for, for any that came in not trusting in Jesus. And make those who already believe that even wiser in their salvation. Paul continues to Timothy, he says that your scripture is breathed out by you. 
It's profitable to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness that we might be equipped, complete for every good work. Lord, we ask that our time in Second Peter would do just that in this local church, Cross Point, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.